Well, do open your Bibles to John chapter 3. Um, every so often as a, a, a preacher, one of my frustrations, as well as the microphone lead, is um, that you, you come across a, a topic or a passage like this, the, the love of God, and you just feel um, the frustration of not being able to say, well, how could anyone ever say all that there is to say about the love of God? But you feel the frustration of just scratching the surface. Um, I feel that very much this morning as we come to think about this uh, tremendous theme that is so prevalent in the Scriptures. Um, to help us work our way through this this morning, I actually found myself returning to a book that um, we preached our way through here over 10 years ago in Hill Street in uh, the evening services. Some of you might remember uh, Don Carson's book, The God Who Is There. Um, he has a wonderful chapter in that on the love of God. Um, and to begin with here this morning, what I want to do is, is take some of what he outlines in that chapter and to look at five different ways that the Bible speaks about God's love. It's important to say that these are not five different ways in which God loves, but five different ways in which the Bible speaks to us about the love of God. Having that distinction clear in our, clear in our heads is going to be important for us as we begin here this morning. And once we've done that, then we'll, we'll look at John chapter 3 in a bit of detail together. So five different ways then that the Bible speaks to us about the love of God. First of all, there is the love of God within the Trinity, or within the Godhead. The Bible explicitly speaks to us of the love of the Father for the Son. In fact, if you were to read right to the end of John chapter 3, you would see that it does that. John chapter 3 and verse 35 says, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything into His hands. We also see this at the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3 and at the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, both really significant high points in his ministry where the heavens open and a voice comes from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So the Bible speaks about the Father's love for the Son. The Bible also speaks about the love of the Son for the Father. So in John chapter 14 and verse 31, when speaking to his disciples, Jesus makes it very clear to them that the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus' perfect obedience was born out of love for his Father. The Bible is very explicit when it's talking about the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. Now, we must say that, that Scripture is less explicit when it comes to the love of the Holy Spirit for other members of the Trinity, but I think one of the things that we are to infer from the rest of Scripture is that the Spirit does love both the Father and the Son. The Bible clearly teaches us that the Holy Spirit is a person and that part of His job is to produce in believers love towards the Father and the Son. It would be strange, impossible even, for the Spirit to produce that love in believers if He Himself did not love the Father and the Son. So one of the implicit truths of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit loves and indeed is loved by both the Father and the Son. And so when we come to think of this notion that God is love, where ought we to begin? Well, we ought to begin with the Trinity itself. We could say that God is a loving union of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as is often the case in the Bible, we see this 
intra-Trinitarian love most clearly at the cross. The primary reason that Jesus goes to the cross is because he loves his Father, and he wants to do his Father's will. In some ways, the pinnacle of his loving obedience is displayed most clearly at the cross. And actually, there is another sense in which the Father is never more pleased with his Son than when he is bearing the curse of sin at the cross. So, in fact, Sinclair Ferguson suggests that at that particular moment in redemptive history, the Father could have been quietly singing over his Son, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That at the darkest moment of the biblical story, the light and love of God's love shines forth most powerfully. So, the love of God within the Trinity then. Secondly, the Bible speaks to us about God's love in a, a general care over creation kind of way. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us that God sends His sun and rain upon the just and the unjust, upon the good and the bad alike. He is indiscriminate about this. In fact, even those who are vehemently opposed to God are still beneficiaries of this kind of love. He sustains both the godly and the ungodly. There is a sense in which God's love extends both to friend and foe alike. He is the creator who lovingly sustains his creation, and this is a second way in which the Bible speaks about the love of God. Thirdly then, the Bible speaks about God's love in what Don Carson calls an inviting, commanding, yearning sense. So, for example, sometimes in the Old Testament, we, we see this in Ezekiel chapter 18, for example, God addresses Israel, and He does so in such a way where He is yearning for them to turn from their sin and to embrace His love for them and to turn and obey. So, Ezekiel 18, we read, turn from your sin, why will you die? The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants His people to repent and turn from sin and turn towards Him. He wants them to live, not die. His heart longs for them to stop wandering in their sin, but rather to turn and to embrace His love and to have life in His name. I was writing this particular part of this sermon this week in Dobby's Garden Center during the week. If you've been to Dobby's, you'll know that there's a little soft play area. My life basically revolves around trying to find places where coffee and soft play can coincide. But I was writing this at Dobby's Soft Play Toby was tearing away. Aidan was a little bit more tentative. She was in the soft place. She kept coming back to the table that I was writing the sermon at and saying, Daddy, Daddy, come on, come and play. So I had to hold her by the hand, take her back to the soft place, set her up the steps and go, where you go? Go play with Toby. Came back, wrote another word in the sermon and Aidan would be right there at the desk again. Daddy, Daddy, come on, come and play. That kind of loving, yearning sense is one of the ways that the Bible speaks about the love of God. He wants his people to embrace his love and to turn from their sin. Fourthly then, God's love is selective. This is where things become somewhat controversial, but this is one of the threads of the Bible's teaching, and we must think clearly and biblically and faithfully about what it means. Sometimes in the Bible, God chooses to set his affection on one person or one nation and not on another. So, for example, in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, we read how God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. 
in that particular instance, his covenantal love is set particularly on Jacob, and the line of promise continues through him and his offspring. Now, the language there in Malachi is particularly strong and striking, but the principle of God's love sometimes being selective is a recurring one throughout the Scripture. We see it, for example, in God's relationship with Israel. Why is it that God chooses to love the nation of Israel particularly? Is it because they are a big nation? No, it's not. Is it because they are a mighty nation? Again, no, it's not. For large periods of their history, they're a pretty minor player on the world stage. Is it because they are more righteous and more godly than the other nations around them? Again, no. If you've read your Old Testament, you will know that oftentimes they are just as wayward as the pagan nations around them. God sets his affection on Israel for no other reason than he loved them. Don Carson says he loved them because he loved them. Now, I know that this can be very difficult for us to get our heads around. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you have lots of questions about that. I'm sure Nigel and John will be absolutely delighted to answer those for you when they come back. This is complicated, I recognize that, and yet we must also say that this is here in the Scriptures. It is a thread, it is one of the ways that the Bible talks about God's love that we must pay attention to and that we cannot ignore. God sets His love on some people and not others, and it is His sovereign choice. That is one of the ways that the Bible reveals God's love to us. Fifthly then, God's love is seen as conditional. Again, this is maybe something that doesn't necessarily sit easy with us. Naturally, we tend to think of God's love as being unconditional, and of course, there is a sense in which that is very true. The gospel teaches us that God loves us on the basis of Christ's perfect performance for us and not our own efforts. However, in the Bible, there are also times when God's love is described as conditional, particularly within the context of a covenant-based relationship. So, for example, in the, the penultimate book of the Bible, the little book of Jude, in verse 21, it says, keep yourselves in God's love. The implication being that clearly it is possible to not keep yourself in God's love. Even the Ten Commandments are shaped at least partially by conditionality. So, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 6, God says that He will show love to a thousand generations of people who love Him and keep His commandments. So, you see, there are some passages in the Bible where God's love is talked about in conditional terms. Why is all of this important? Why does it matter for us to be able to distinguish between the different ways that the Bible talks about the love of God? Well, it's important for us to recognize that context is really important when we read about the love of God in the Bible. Context is the key to understanding what a particular passage means when it talks about the love of God. There is a sense in which this is the same for us in how we use language today. So, for example, I could say, I love Leeds United, I love golf, I love Mars ice cream, and I love Linda. But if each of those carry equal weight, or if even I love them in that order, then Linda will be less than pleased. You see, although I've used the same word, the context gives fuller meaning to my use of the word love. Each of those things might be true, but they certainly carry different weight. 
my use of the word love takes on a slightly different meaning in each context. So when we talk about the love of God, we have to be careful not to oversimplify things. We must read the Bible in its proper context. And when we're reading the Bible about God's love, we should appreciate that there are a variety of ways in which that is revealed to us in the Scriptures. Let's take a few moments then to look at these verses in John chapter 3, particularly verses 16 to 21 of the passage that we read earlier, and to note a few things here about God and His love. Firstly, we should be astonished that God loves us. We should be astonished that God loves us. The truth is that we are often somewhat apathetic in our hearts when it comes to the love of God. But the Bible frequently encourages us to both delight in and marvel at God's love for us. And we can only do that when we have an appreciation of just how incredible it is that God should love humanity at all. You see, the the world that John speaks about here in verse 16 is not a lovable place full of lovable people, but rather a wicked place full of rebellious people. Ultimately, it's a place that has rejected God and His ways. And so, when we read about the world in John's gospel, we should be thinking about badness rather than bigness. God isn't, John isn't using the term to describe the, the size of something, but rather a state of spiritual animosity. And so, verse 19 tells us that one of the distinguishing features of the world is that it loves darkness and not light. So imagine if we were to ask the question, what is it that's wrong with the world? We do that from time to time, don't we? Maybe you ponder that question from time to time. What is it that's wrong with the world? There is a sense in which we could answer that question by saying that the world has a love problem. Human beings have a tendency to love darkness and not light. It was St. Augustine who said that sin is, at its heart, disordered love. It's when we get our loves out of sync. It's when we love the wrong things, or even when we love good things too badly. That is the heart of the human problem. The heart of the human problem is a love problem. So the world then in the Bible is, is not a lovable place, and yet the text says very clearly, doesn't it, that God so loved the world. Why? It's not because there's anything lovely or lovable about the world, but because this is the kind of God He is. The world is hateful and spiteful and murderous towards God, and yet God loves it anyway, solely because He is that kind of God. Friends, we should marvel at this. Our problem, of course, is that we have been somewhat inoculated to this truth, And if your heart's anything like mine, then it can easily become dulled and desensitized to the truths that should actually thrill our hearts the most. God so loved the world. I'm sure if we were to do a poll this morning as to which Bible verse is best known off by heart in the congregation, then John 3.16 would come out top of the list by a distance. We are well familiar with these words, at least in an intellectual sense. But of course, it is possible to know these things off by heart, and yet for the spiritual reality of these things to not have penetrated our hearts and thrilled our hearts 
in the way that they should. I wonder if you were to examine your own heart this morning and ask the question, does the truth of John 3.16 astonish you? It should. John Piper says these words, I find these really challenging this week. For many, Christianity has become the grinding out of general doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts, but childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and poetry and music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach in the back of a refrigerator. I wonder, do you ever find that your heart feels like that when it comes to the love of God? Now, you can quote John 3.16, no problem. You can exegete it and explain it better than I'm doing this morning. But perhaps it doesn't thrill you in the way that it once did. The solution to that problem is to gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to meditate upon who He is and what He has done for us more deeply so that our hearts begin to catch fire in the presence of God. That brings us then to our second point, that the measure of God's love for us is Jesus. Love is something that's very difficult to measure. How would you measure my love for Leeds United? You might look at how often I go to see them play or how keen I am to see their results or how grumpy I am when they lose, which is all too often these days. How would you measure love for a person? It should be measured over a long period of time. You would look at how faithful and caring someone is, how much time they spend with them, the attention to detail in their relationship, how much one is willing to sacrifice for the other. It can be difficult to measure love. And yet the second half of verse 16 tells us that the measure of God's love for us is that He gave His one and only Son. So another question, how do we know that God loves the world? Answer, we look to Jesus. And what we see when we look at the Lord Jesus in the Gospels is that He had incredible love for people. He was full to the brim with love for all different kinds of people. In Matthew chapter 9, we're told that he looks at the crowd. He is full of love and compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Mark chapter 10, he looks at the little children and everyone else was rejecting them, including his own disciples. And he lovingly says, let the little children come unto me because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. When we read about him in the gospels, one of the other things that we cannot help but notice about him is that he interacts with individuals masterfully. He doesn't use a one-size-fits-all formula, but he is incredibly patient and incredibly pastorally sensitive with people. He is always honest with them, but he extends his love. So actually in Mark chapter 10, straight after he blesses those little children, he meets a rich young ruler, and he quickly discerns that this man loves money more than he loves God. And Mark explicitly tells us that Jesus looked at the man and loved him, and as he did so, he told him the hard truth about his idol in the place of living and loving for the one true God. He said the hard thing because he loved him. In John's gospel, Jesus radically extends inclusive love to the Samaritan woman at the well, even when everyone else had rejected her. His love transcends the traditional categories and confounds both religious leaders and his disciples alike. He gains a reputation for loving eating and drinking with the moral and social outcasts, 
He extends love to Roman centurions, despised tax collectors, women of ill repute, the blind, the lame, the leprous, even those who would betray him bitterly and shamefully deny him. The Lord Jesus extends his love to all. He also loves in ways that shatter people's categories for how they think he ought to operate. So, for example, in John chapter 11, when Jesus learns of the death of his dear friend Lazarus, he delays going to see Mary and Martha. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. One of the things that John tells us there is that he loved them, Mary and Martha, so he stayed where he was. He delays going to those who are suffering most intensely because he wants their suffering and hardship to help them grow in the faith and not abandon the faith. The point is that Jesus loves all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of mess and all kinds of baggage and all kinds of hurt and all kinds of pain because really when it boils down to it, that's the only kind of people there are. Whenever I was a teenager, I used to do the milk with my dad. That was pretty brutal in truth, but there, were, there was one particular thing that was um, especially annoying about delivering milk. It was the slugs. So we used to go down to the doorstep with whatever it is, two pints of full cream milk, set it at the door, have to pick up the empty bottles. And every so often, especially in the winter, you would have slugs crawling around the top of the empty bottle and you'd put your hand in and you would jump back because the slime of the slug would make you recoil. I hated it. And so you had to figure out a way, get a stick to flick this slug or just leave the empty bottles at the door. More often than not is what I ended up doing. But I, I hated the feeling of touching this slimy slug and I recoiled back more often than not when it happened. Perhaps you're at church this morning and you're hearing all of this about the love of God for all sorts of different types of people, and yet you're thinking, I feel like God would treat me a little bit like how you would recoil at a slug. You think that there are parts of your life, baggage in your past or sin and failure in your present that makes you think that the Lord Jesus would recoil at you. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that the parts of your life that you're most ashamed of that you're most embarrassed by and that you're most weighed down by and most guilty about are the parts of your life that he is most interested in. That's who the real biblical Jesus is and that's how he loves. He embraces the awkwardness and the mess because he is much, much better than we often think he is. The measure of God's love for us is Jesus. Thirdly and finally then, the purpose of God's love for us is that we might have life. Look at verse 16 with me again. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then on to verse 17 we read, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Notice the, the juxtapositions in those verses. Shall not perish versus have eternal life not to condemn the world, but to save the world. These verses are saying to us that the purpose of God's love, and specifically the purpose of Christ's death, is so that you might have this instead of that, so that you might have life instead of death, so that you might be saved and not condemned. That is the purpose at the very heart of God's love. And that's why the love of God in the Bible reaches its crescendo at the cross of Jesus Christ. One of the errors that we must take great care to avoid in Christian theology is to misunderstand the death of Jesus. We have to see that he didn't go to the cross because he was a victim of fate. 
He didn't go to the cross as some sort of abstract lesson for us. He didn't go to the cross merely as an example for us, although he is an example for us. We must see that his purpose in going to the cross was that he might save people from the condemnation that was hanging over them. That is the truth that lies right at the very heart of the Christian gospel. If we misunderstand the cross, then we misunderstand the key event in the storyline of the Bible, and we will have an impoverished view of God's love. Now, these verses don't describe at any great length exactly how it is that God saves us from condemnation, but there are other examples in John's gospel that do that. One powerful example that Don Carson refers to, actually, is in John chapter 6, where Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. In those verses, he, he says that unless we eat him and feast upon him, then we will die. And of course, we have tended to understand those words as making reference to the sacrament of communion. That is legitimate and correct, of course. But we also have to be careful not to dismiss the original context in which Jesus spoke those words. We have to understand that in the ancient world, almost everyone worked with their hands or were working close to farms. They were much closer to nature than we are today. If you were to ask a, a seven-year-old today, where does your food come from? There's a fair chance that they might answer, well, Tesco or Asda or the shop. But if you were to ask a child in the first century Palestine, where does your food come from? They would give a different answer. They would reply from the plants in the ground or the fish in the sea or the animals in the field. They would have grown up with a culture that was much more used to catching food themselves. And so in the first century, it was ingrained into the psyche of the people that you lived because the chicken died or that you lived because the carrots were pulled up from the ground and were killed. All of their food had essentially given its life in substitution. Either it died or the people died. Maybe on your, your way home at church this evening, if you're back out at church tonight, you'll find yourself a little bit peckish and you'll fancy going to McDonald's for a Big Mac meal. What is it that you will eat if you go to McDonald's? Well, you'll eat dead cow and dead lettuce and dead tomato and dead barley and dead potatoes cut up into thin little strips and deep fat fried. Maybe the notion has quickly gone off you going to McDonald's. The point I'm trying to make is that there is a sense in which all of what we eat has given its life for us. Either it dies or we die. Now, of course, the cow doesn't volunteer to become a Big Mac, nor does the lettuce or tomato for that matter. But the point is not the voluntary nature of substitution. The point is the reality of the substitution. Either you die or something else living dies so that you may live. And that's the language and idea that Jesus is picking up on in John chapter 6. He says, unless you eat my flesh, you will die. In effect, he is saying, I die or you will die. You cannot have life unless I die. The dominant message of the New Testament is that Jesus dies a substitutionary death. He does not deserve to die. But there is huge purpose in his death. At the cross, he dies our death so that we do not have to die, but rather that we might have, as John says in chapter 3, eternal life. That's what the text is saying. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The purpose of God's love for us in Christ Jesus is that we might have life. Toby's been at a, a holiday Bible club this week. He's been very excited each day coming home with his 
little craft. One day he came home with a, a craft by the, the curtain of the temple, and the curtain of the temple was closed with a big massive do not enter sign on it. And I was asking him about this craft, and he said, the, the sign says do not enter because we cannot come in because of our sin. I said, that's right, son, we cannot come in because of our sin. Next day he came home, was asking him, what did you learn about today? He said, dad, the curtain was torn open. So excited about it. I said, brilliant. What, what had to happen for the curtain to be torn open? Jesus had to die, dad. That's right, son, he did. Why did he have to die? He had to die because we're sinful. That's right, son, he had to die because we're sinful. But, but why else did Jesus have to die? I was pushing him at this point. How did he feel about us? He thought about it for a little moment. He died because he loved us. That's right, son, he did. It's not complicated. It's simple enough even for a child to understand. But friends, it should astonish us that you and I can have eternal life, that we can experience God's redeeming love because of all that the Lord Jesus has done for us at the cross. I'm absolutely convinced that this is the love that we have been made for. And perhaps you're here at church this morning and you know that you don't yet have this love for yourself. Let me tell you, this is the love that you've been looking for your whole life. And the Lord Jesus says to you, I have given myself so that you can have life and you can have life by believing in me. Perhaps you're here this morning and you, you are a Christian, but your heart feels a little bit like the, the shriveled up peach in the back of the fridge. Friends, as you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for you and just how much he loves you, will you be asking God by his spirit to thrill your heart afresh with these things so that you find yourself wanting to live him more and loving the light more than loving the darkness? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life.